History of England, Chapter 10, Part 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, from the accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter 10, Part 2 The morning of the 12th of December rose on a ghastly sight. The capital in many places presented the aspect of a city taken by storm. The lords met at Wildhall, and exerted themselves to restore tranquillity. The three bands were ordered under arms. A body of cavalry was kept in readiness to disperse tumultuous assemblages. Such atonement as was at that moment possible was made for gross insults which had been offered to foreign governments. A reward was promised for the discovery at the property taken from Wild House. And Bronchilo, who had not a bed or an ounce of plate left, was penniless lodged in the deserted palace of the kings of England. A sumptuous table was kept for him, and the Ayo men of the guard were ordered to wait in his antechamber with the same observance which they were in the habit of paying to the sovereign. These marks of respect suited even the punctilious pride of the Spanish court, and averted all danger of a rupture. In spite, however, of the well-meant efforts of the provisional government, the agitation grew hourly more formidable. It was heightened by an event which, even at this distance of time, can hardly be related without a feeling of indictive pleasure. A scrivener, who lived at Wapping, and whose trade was to furnish the seafaring men, there with money at high interest, added some time before, lent a sum on bottomry. The debtor applied to equity for relief against his own bond, and the case came before Jeffreys. The counsel for the borrower, having little else to say, said that the lender was a trimmer. The Chancellor instantly fired. A trimmer? Where is he? Let me see him. I have heard of that kind of monster. What is it made like? The unfortunate creditor was forced to stand forth. The Chancellor glared fiercely on him, stormed at him, and sent him away half dead with fright. While I live, the poor man said, as he tottered out of the court, I shall never forget that terrible countenance. And now the day of retribution had arrived. The trimmer was walking through Wapping when he saw a well-known face looking out of the window of an Halley house. He could not be deceived. The eyebrows, indeed, had been shaved away. The dress was that of a common sailor from Newcastle, and was black with coal dust. But there was no mistaking the savage eye and mouth of Jeffreys. The alarm was given. In a moment the house was surrounded by hundreds of people shaking bludgeons and blowing curses. The fugitive's life was saved by a company of the trains band, and he was carried before the Lord Mayor. The Mayor was a simple man who had passed his whole life in obscurity, and was bewildered by finding himself an important actor in a mighty revolution. The events of the last twenty-four hours, and the perilous state of the city which was under his charge, had disordered his mind and his body. When the great man, at whose frown a few days before the whole kingdom had trembled, was dragged into justice room begrimed with ashes, half dead with fright, 
and followed by a raging multitude, the agitation of the unfortunate mayor rose to the height. He fell into fits and was carried to his bed, whence he never rose. Meanwhile, the throng without was constantly becoming more numerous and more savage. Geoffrey is back to be sent to prison. An order to that effect was procured from the lords who were sitting at Wildhall, and he was conveyed in a carriage to the tower. Two regiments of militia were drawn out to escort him, and found the duty a difficult one. It was repeatedly necessary for them to form, as if to the purpose of repelling a charge of cavalry, and to present a forest of pikes to the mob. The thousands who were disappointed of their revenge pursued the coach, with howls of rage, to the gate of the tower, brandishing cudgels and holding up altars full in the prisoner's view. The wretched man, meantime, was in convulsions of terror. He wrung his hands, he looked wildly out, sometimes at one window, sometimes at the other, and was heard even above the tumult, crying, Keep them off, gentlemen! For God's sake, keep them off! At length, having suffered far more than the bitterness of death, he was safely lodged in the fortress where some of his most illustrious victims had passed their last days, and where his own life was destined to close in unspeakable ignominy and horror. All this time an active search was making after Roman Catholic priests. Many were arrested. Two bishops, Alice and Leyburn, were sent to Newgate. The nuncio, who had little reason to expect that either his spiritual or his political character would be respected by the multitude, made his escape disguised as a lackey in the train of the minister of the Duke of Savoy. Another day of agitation and terror closed, and was followed by a night the strangest and most terrible that England had ever seen. Early in the evening, an attack was made by the rebel on a stately house, which had been built a few months before for Lord Powers, which in the reign of George II was the residence of the Duke of Newcastle, and which is still conspicuous at the northwestern angle of Lincoln's Inn Fields. Some troops were sent thither. The mob was dispersed, tranquillity seemed to be restored, and the citizens were retiring quietly to their beds. Just at this time arose a whisper, which swelled fast into a fearful clamor, passed in an hour from Piccadilly to Whitechapel, and spread into every street and alley of the capital. It was said that Irish, whom Feversham had let loose, were marching on London and massacring every man, woman and child on the road. At one in the morning the drums of the militia beat to arms. Everywhere terrified women were weeping and wringing their hands, while their fathers and husbands were equipping themselves for fight. Before two the capital were a face of stern preparedness which might well have daunted the real enemy if such an enemy had been approaching. Candles were blazing at all the windows. The public places were as bright as at noonday. All the great avenues were barricaded. More than twenty thousand pikes and muskets lined the streets. The late daybreak of the winter solstice found the whole city still in arms. During many years the Londoners retained a vivid recollection of what she called the Irish night. When it was known that there had been no cause of alarm, attempts were made to discover the origin of the rumor which had produced so much agitation. 
It appeared that some persons who had look and dress of clowns just arrived from the country had first spread report in the suburbs a little before midnight. But whence these men came, and by whom they were employed, remained a mystery. As soon news arrived from many quarters, which bewildered the public mind still more. The panic had not been confined to London. The cry that disbanded Irish soldiers were coming to murder the Protestants had, with malignant ingenuity, been raised at once in many places widely distant from each other. Great numbers of letters, skillfully framed for the purpose of frightening ignorant people, had been sent by stagecoaches, by wagons and by the post to various parts of England. All these letters came to hand almost at the same time. In a hundred towns at once the populace was possessed with the belief that armed barbarians were at hand, bent or perpetrating crimes as foul as those which had disgraced the rebellion of Ulster. No protestant would find mercy. Children would be compelled by torture to murder their parents. Babes would be stuck on pikes or flung into the blazing ruins of what had lately been happy dwellings. Great multitudes assembled with weapons. The people in some places began to pull down bridges and throw up barricades. But soon the excitement went down. In many districts, those who had been so foully imposed upon learned with delight, alloyed by shame, that there was not a single popish soldier within a week's march. There were places, indeed, where some straggling bands of Irish made their appearance and demanded food but it can scarcely be imputed to them as a crime that they did not choose to die of hunger, and there is no evidence that they committed any wanton outrage. In truth, they were much less numerous than was commonly supposed, and their spirit was cowed by finding themselves left on a sudden without leaders or provisions, in the midst of a mighty population which fell towards them as men fell towards a drove of wolves. Of all the subjects of James, None had more reason to execrate him than these unfortunate members of his church and defenders of his throne. It is honourable to the English character that, notwithstanding the aversion with which the Roman Catholic religion and the Irish race were then regarded, notwithstanding the anarchy which was the effect of the flight of James, notwithstanding the artful machinations which were employed to scare the multitude into cruelty, no atrocious crime was perpetrated at this conjuncture. Much property, indeed, was destroyed and carried away. The houses of many Roman Catholic gentlemen were attacked, parks were ravaged, deer were slain and stolen. Some venerable specimens of the domestic architecture of the Middle Ages bear to this day the marks of popular violence. The roads were in many places made impossible by a self-appointed police, which stopped every traveller till he proved that he was not a papist. The Thames was infested by a set of pirates who, under pretense of searching for arms or delinquents, rummaged every boat that passed. Obnoxious persons were insulted and hustled. Many persons who were not obnoxious were glad to ransom their persons and effects by bestowing some guineas on zealous Protestants who had, without any legal authority, assumed the office of inquisitors. But in all this confusion, which lasted several days and extended over many counties, not a single Roman Catholic lost his life. 
the mob showed no inclination to blood, except in the case of Jeffreys, and the hatred which had that bad man inspired and more affinity with humanity than with cruelty. Many years later, Hugh Speak affirmed that Irish Knight was his work, that he had prompted the rustics who raised London, and that he was the author of letters which had spread dismay through the country. His assertion is not intrinsically improbable, but it rests on no evidence except his own word. He was a man quite capable of committing such a villainy, and quite capable also of falsely boasting that he had committed it. At London, William was impatiently expected, for it was not doubted that his vigour and ability would speedily restore order and security. There was, however, some delay for which the prince cannot justly be blamed. His original intention having to proceed from Ungerford to Oxford, where he was assured of an honourable and affectionate reception. But the arrival of the deputation from Guildhall induced him to change his intention and to hasten directly towards the capital. On the way, he learned that Feversham, in pursuance of the king's orders, had dismissed the royal army, and that thousands of soldiers, freed from the strength and destitute of necessaries, were scattered over the counties through which the road to London lay. It was therefore impossible for William to proceed standardly attended without the great danger, not only to his own person, about which he was not much in the habit of being solicitous, but also to the great interests which were under his care. It was necessary that he should regulate his own movements by the movements of his troops, and troops could then move but slowly over the highways of England in midwinter. He was, on this occasion, a little moved from his ordinary composure. I am not to be thus dealt with, he exclaimed with bitterness, and that my lord Feversham shall find. Prompt and judicious measures were taken to remedy the evils which James had caused. Churchill and Grafton were entrusted with the task of reassembling the dispersed army and bringing it into order. The English soldiers were invited to resume their military character. The Irish were commanded to deliver up their arms on pain of being treated as banditti, but were assured that, if they would submit quietly, they should be supplied with necessaries. End of part two.